Hey, Cornwall Church, thanks for joining us today on Super Bowl weekend. Uh, I don't know what your plans are for that, but one of the great things about the Super Bowl is that there's a game, and if you're not into football, there are commercials. And at $5 million per 30-second commercial, they're usually pretty good. And depending on what you're doing this year, hopefully you're being safe, but usually there's friends and a lot of food. And I was thinking about if Jesus threw a a Super Bowl party, uh, he would definitely have friends um, and he would have a lot of food. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Bob, who do you think Jesus would root for in the Super Bowl? And honestly, I don't think Jesus would care who won the Super Bowl um, because his team is not not in the Super Bowl this year. And, and, and you're probably saying, oh, like the Saints? Like, well, no, the Seahawks, of course. You know, he's all about the 12th man with his disciples and such. But Jesus would have friends and he would have food because that's what he did a lot. Seamless segue into our series we're in, Jesus, the Meals with Jesus. And what we find is that there are many, many encounters throughout the New Testament where Jesus is having friends together and having food and having these meals. And as we saw last week, and we'll see again this week, it appears he's indiscriminate, even scandalous at who he'll eat with. I mean, it's like anybody. It, it doesn't even matter. And I think the reason is, is because Jesus' heart is that he desired for every single person, uh, as it says in Psalm 34, every single person to taste and see that the Lord is good. He was inviting everybody to this forever feast. Not a feast that would start just someday when they died, but a feast that starts now to be in the kingdom of God, to invite them in and and be a part of this forever feast and to taste and see that, 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 that the Lord is good and to celebrate the goodness and grace of God. So we're gonna look at another one of those meals today, but before we do, I wanna back up a little bit and tell you about a meal that was um, kind of a a standard in my upbringing years. Uh, And it was the main meal of the week in our house, and it was the Sunday dinner. Some of you will relate to this. Some Some of you have never experienced this. Let me tell you what I grew up experiencing. My dad was a pastor, And when we moved to Vancouver, Washington, for him to be the pastor at the church there, we moved into uh, the house that was next door to the church called the Parsonage. It was owned by the church, and we lived there for about four years. So we lived right across the parking lot uh, from, from the church building. And on Sunday mornings, we would get ready for church, and my mom would start this this weekly tradition and ritual of getting the Sunday meal ready. And sometimes we'd start like setting the table even, getting the tablecloth, but she would get usually a big piece of meat, primarily a roast, a roast, a pot roast, a roast beef of some sort. Occasionally there was ham, but usually it was roast and she would throw in some potatoes and carrots and onions and seasonings and all this stuff and get it all ready to go in the oven. And then she would take these little, these little balls of dough and put them on a cookie sheet and then she would put a kitchen towel over those so that they could kind of rise. And then at about 9.30 or so, everything would go, and not the rolls, but the, the, the meat would go into the oven and we would walk across the parking lot to go to Sunday school at 9.45, which is the time that apparently Jesus established because that's the way it's always been done. And then at 11 o'clock, we would go into the service. And then after the service was dismissed, people would greet, they would, they would go home and we would walk across the parking lot. And when we walked in the back door of our house, there was this aroma that just filled the house. I can like almost in my head smell it now of this roast that had been in the, in the oven and had been cooking with the potatoes and the, and, the, and the carrots and the onions and the smell was just 
amazing. And we would pull the roast out of the oven and, and then the, the rolls would go in the oven and we would set the table and, and mom would make the gravy and probably do some green beans and we would change and get all ready. And my job was to, to carve the, the, the meat because I love to use that, that um, electric knife and we'd do all that. And then about one o'clock, we would gather around the table. No matter who's playing football or what's on TV, the TV was turned off. Of course, no one had cell phones. And we would gather, sometimes as a family, but it seemed like there was always someone else with us at that table. Now, often we would say, hey, mom, can I invite, you know, Mark or Doug or, or Stephen over after church to, to have lunch and spend the afternoon? Because, of course, their parents would come back to Sunday night church and then they could go home with their parents. So we would often have our friends there. And a lot of times we would have college students because, of course, they wouldn't pass up a free meal. And there would be times that mom would go to church just kind of with her radar up to think, is there, is there someone, a, a widow? Is there a single person? Is there a young couple? Is there a family that we could have? And there was always plenty. And so we would sit down at this meal and we would eat and it was amazing. But we would talk and we would laugh and we'd get to know each other and we'd tell stories. The reason I tell you that whole thing, besides the fact that I really am trying to make you very hungry right now, is that for me, and I think maybe for all of us, is that as we would share this together, meals together are synonymous with relationship. That, that there would be this interaction, there would be this exchange, there would be this discussion. I mean, you think about that now. I mean, you love to have meals with friends, meals with your family, meals where there's a relationship. And maybe some of the relationships you have, some of the friendships you have, started with a meal. That you met this person at the table in middle school, or you, know, you, you guys shared a meal, or maybe you were on a date and you ate a meal and that became your spouse or became your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever, or maybe a business started over a meal or a business partner, and it can change all kinds of things. In fact, what starts at a meal can actually change the entire trajectory of someone's life. And I think Jesus knew this and I think he leveraged it for very significant, eternal kingdom purposes. And that's why maybe there are so many recorded encounters that Jesus has with people over meals. So today we're going to look at, at another one of these meals with Jesus. But before we do, um, I want to give you some kind of a cultural uh, backdrop and a little bit of um, a little context, because when I when we understand this, I think you'll begin to understand how shocking this meal was, not only to the religious leaders, probably to Jesus' disciples, and maybe even to those who are sitting around the table. Now, I referenced this briefly last week. In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, it says this, or verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. There were all, all these people, the tax collectors and sinners, we'll get to that in a minute, were gathered around to hear Jesus. They weren't forced, they weren't coerced, they were choosing to, and, and it's like they were wanting to hear him. And it's all great, except not everybody was happy about this. In verse two it goes on, it says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. The religious leaders were not happy about this. And this is what they were muttering. This man, they don't even call him by his name. They've kind of objectified this man. Even that's kind of got a, an edge on it. This man, this man welcomes sinners and, meals with Jesus, eats with them. 
Now, to understand why this was so upsetting to them, you've got to understand in that culture, there was on a, on a very broad scale, a lot of nuance with this, but on a very broad scale, there were in the Jewish community really two big groups of people. And again, this is really broad brush stuff. Two large groups of people. One of these groups of people were people who were trying to follow the laws and the Levitical laws and the laws of God and trying to apply those things to their lives. The other group were people who really weren't. These people were the orthodox ones, the people of the word. And this other group over here that, yeah, kind of take it or leave it, not really that interested in it, not trying that hard, they were often referred to as, one commentator would say, we call them the people of the land. Now, when it came to eating, in Leviticus, there were some dietary laws that had been laid down. But over the years, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and such, they had an oral tradition, and they, as we've talked about before, they would add, well, interpreting this law means do this, 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 don't do this, this, this. So what started as a law may have been multiple laws. And so when it came to to trying to follow the dietary laws in the Scripture and beyond the Scripture, it would just be very logistically difficult to eat with someone who was not trying to follow those laws. Let me give you a partial example. If you, and we'll just hypothetically say whoever you is, if you were, were a vegan and committed to only eating organic, so you're an organic vegan, and you have a horrible, truly have uh, celiac, so you must be gluten-free, you have to be, or it impacts you tremendously, and in addition to that, you have extreme food allergies. Now, if that's you, you're trying to, you're gonna be very, very careful about what you eat, what you don't eat, how it's prepared, where you're eating, what it came in contact with, and to have, you know, lunch or dinner or to eat with some omnivore that just eats anything and everywhere, it doesn't matter, it's gonna be difficult just logistically. So even on just a logistical level, if someone's trying to follow the dietary laws of Leviticus and beyond, it would have a, they would have a very difficult time eating with someone who is a people of the land. But it goes beyond that. Because it wasn't just the logistical uh, inconvenience or difficulty or even impossibility. They took it to a moral, ethical, religious, and spiritual level. William Barclay, in his commentary in the book of Luke, when he references um, these people of law, he said, this is what was written about uh, engaging with the people of law. When a man is one of the people of the land, sorry, I said people of law. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. It's not only don't eat with him. Don't be involved with him at all. Avoid all contact with this person. So when they said Jesus welcomes these people and he eats with them, you begin to understand why they were muttering, why they were so upset. In their mindset, association meant contamination. You associate with these people of the land, you're going to be contaminated. But like maybe, maybe a bad example, but maybe you grew up talking about someone having cooties or whatever. They got cooties. Now, we didn't use the cooties thing. We had one that was far more contagious and far more dreaded, and that was girl germs. Oh, my word. Just a touch 
could render you contaminated with girl germs. And then you could pass it on, girl germs, no returns, and the whole deal. Well, on a very serious and deep spiritual level, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law felt like any kind of association with any of these individuals would cause them to be contaminated. So they find themselves kind of vexed by this Jesus who at times seems to be orthodox. He seems to be following God's law. And not only that, but he's seen as a religious spiritual leader. He, he's seen as, as a rabbi, and yet he does this. And how can it be? And what I find funny is that while they're thinking, you know, any kind of contact, any kind of association is going to cause me to be contaminated, and they're so worried about their own self-preservation and their own purification that they won't do that, Jesus does kind of agree with them. But it's the contact that's a little bit different that he agrees with. Because there is a time when he warns his disciples about being contaminated by being in too close a contact. But look what it says in Matthew 16. Jesus said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is saying, yeah, you got to watch out about getting contaminated around here, but it's not with these sinners, it's with these religious people. It reminds me of that, that story of, of the young lady who started dating a, a guy, and, and they were early in their relationship, and she didn't know what to do, so she called her friend, and she said, can you help me out? I, I, I just, I don't know what to do. She said, well, what? And she said, well, I started seeing this guy. Yeah, how's it going? Well, good. Well, we've done some dates, and we like each other. We enjoy each other's company, and we're growing and getting to know each other, but he keeps asking about my family, and I just don't know what to do. And her friend said, well, why? What, what don't you, what's the problem? So, well, you know my family. I mean, my dad was a convicted felon, and my mom was married four times, and, and my sister, she's had three kids with three different guys and hasn't married any of them, and my brother's a youth pastor, and I'm just wondering, should I tell him about my brother? Like, you know, that would be the worst. I mean, everything else, we're okay with that, but the religious and Jesus is saying, listen, there's contamination, but it's the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers. Watch out for that one. Okay, so let's look at a meal of Jesus, and if you have your Bible, we're gonna look in the book of Matthew, Matthew is the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament, and it's written by Matthew. Now, here's the cool thing about today. So we're in the book of Matthew, written by Matthew, and the meal we're going to look at is the first meal that Jesus has with Matthew. He's writing his own experience, his own meal with Jesus, and he includes it in his book. One more little uh, context before we get into that actual meal. But if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 1 just to give some more context. It says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now you hear about that. He's in a boat. Okay, so he's probably on the Sea of Galilee. We probably get that. And he crosses over to his own town. So are we talking about Bethlehem? Because that's where he was born. No, it's not Bethlehem. Well, then Nazareth, because that's where he was raised. No, this isn't Nazareth. He goes to the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee on the northern end. And just six miles away is another little town right on the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. Why would it say he comes to his own town? Capernaum was the home base for Jesus' earthly ministry. In those three years, he spent more time in Capernaum. He did more miracles in Capernaum. Did more things in that general region, that northern end of, of the Sea of Galilee, 
than anywhere, way more than he did in Jerusalem. And so he spends time there. Now this is happening before he's established his 12 disciples. There are a few that have already joined on. Uh, in Matthew uh, 4, we read that uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, those guys, uh, they're from that area. They're from not only Capernaum, but Bethsaida. They're fishermen, and Jesus says, come follow me, and they become his early disciples. He doesn't have all 12 of them yet. And the other thing is, six, at least six, and maybe more like eight or nine, at least six of Jesus' 12 disciples were from that region, were from that area. So they're very familiar, and that's where he spent most of his time. All right, so now we get to verse 9, and we see this first meal with Jesus. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he's been in Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew, here's our guy, he's writing about himself now, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, again, no one likes that, no one likes taxes, nothing has ever changed in that arena, no one's ever celebrated, oh, this is great, we get to give more money in taxes. Here's the difference for us in this situation. We don't like paying taxes, we don't like paying more taxes, we don't like extra taxes, we don't like people to raise taxes, but for us, Paying taxes is, is paid to some agency, some bureau, the, the, the Department of Treasury, some uh, branch of the federal government. It, it's this impersonal entity out there that requires this of us. And we may not like it. We may not like the IRS. We may not like taxes. But it's just, it's, it's not personal. It's just kind of the way it is. This one, however, is different. This is a man, a personal individual, Matthew. And he is collecting taxes. They're a part of the Roman Empire. At that time, Rome is the, the reigning world you know, empire. And it, it really geographically extends from what we know as, as England to Africa, from Syria to Spain, and the amount of area that it covered and the numbers of people. And they would collect taxes from all of those people. While it was difficult and impossible for Rome to send out people to collect all these taxes, they would auction off the right to collect taxes in certain regions, and people wanted that because it was very lucrative. Because as long as Rome got their money, they didn't really care what you did. So people would add a little bit of padding on the tax, and they became extremely, extremely wealthy. Well, as they have an area, again, it's more than one person could do, so they would go into these local towns, and they would hire local individuals, people from these towns, and pay them far more than they could make anywhere else, to collect taxes locally. And again, there would be a, a freedom to just maybe add a little bit on, maybe skim a little off the top, maybe take some bribes. And what was so difficult about this was these people were local and they were taxing their own and they were getting rich off of the sacrifice of their own people. So they were seen as traitors, like, like they're siding with Rome, this evil empire, and they're bilking us out of our money. So Matthew is local. And the reason I gave you the, the, the context of Capernaum and Bethsaida is he is a local taxpayer. He probably grew up there. It's possible that James and John, Peter and Andrew, may have known Matthew even as kids. It's possible. This is speculation. Matthew may have been the nerdy kid that did really well in math class, and now he's unbelievably wealthy. But... These fishermen have had to pay taxes on their catch. And they've maybe had to pay him taxes. And they don't like him. 
and they're following Jesus, and here they come, and here's Matthew, and you can just imagine them going, you know, Peter's looking over at Andrew and James and John. They're called, the, they're called the sons of thunder. They're like, get them, Jesus. Come on. Tell them a thing or two. Let them have it. You know, and Peter, he's never short for words, and you know he wants to go after it. And so Jesus is there with these guys, and they probably really don't like Matthew at all. Even if they don't know him, even if all that speculation isn't true, he's a tax collector. He's a traitor. He rips off their local people, and he's one of them. And Jesus could have said anything to him could have shamed him, could have made him feel horrible, could have called him out on it. He says two words, follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. Can you imagine what the disciples are doing? Like, what? No, no. That's the thing he said to us. He he told us, come follow me. Those Those are the exact same words. And when Jesus says, follow me, and he, he's not saying, just come over here, I saw a pretty rock, I want you to see it. No, he's asking him to join us. No way, I cannot believe that he's doing this. But Matthew does. Now, between verse 9 and verse 10, time elapses. We don't know how much time. It could have been a couple of hours, it could have been 24 hours, it could have been a few days, it could have been a week. But what happens in verse 10 is later. My guess is it's not that same day. And my guess, as I shared during our fasting series, is that it's probably on a Monday or Thursday, but we won't go into all those details. Verse 10, it says this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So here's our meals with Jesus. Now Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. Very possible Matthew's house is one of the nicer houses in the whole village. Very possible that Matthew's table is amazing. Very possible that the food is exquisite. Because Matthew has probably done very, very well as a tax collector. And again, I can see those disciples, Peter saying, I am not going in there. And little Andrew, his brother, says, But Peter, I mean, there's going to be shawarma and hummus and falafel and lamb chops. It's going to be great. He's like, I don't care. All that food was bought with my tax dollars. I worked hard, and here he is. I don't even want to go. But they go. And it's not just Jesus, a few of his disciples, and Matthew. This is, again, a a big gathering, like we saw last week. A lot of people there. In fact, it says many, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. See, Matthew's not the only tax collector there is in the region. There's also this major trade route that goes right through there called the Via Maris. And it's one of the major trade routes. So they're, they're taxing imports, they're taxing exports, they're taxing uh, traveling on the highway, they're doing all these, there's a lot of tax collectors and no one likes them. And so the tax collectors probably just kind of hang with them themselves like thick as thieves and they're just there together having a great time because no one else ever invites them anywhere. And they've got some of their other buddies that aren't tax collectors, but they're sinners, whatever that means. But again, people of the land. And all of this is going on as they're at Matthew's house. And Matthew puts on this incredible dinner, and Matthew wants all of his guests to taste and see that the food is good, and Jesus wants them to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants them to celebrate the goodness and the grace of God. And for Jesus, these aren't just 
spiritual projects. These are people. In fact, he'd call them friends. And while the religious leaders are trying to avoid them, Jesus wants to be with them. And at the head of the table is Matthew. And what we see is that Jesus engages and participates in his life. He's not willing to just walk by him, to, to avoid him, to try to, to stay away so he's not contaminated. He engages with him. He participates with him. And he has this time with Matthew and all of his friends. Here's what I find amazing. So you have all these tax collectors, all these people of the land, the ones who aren't following God's will. They're not following the laws. They're hated by everybody. They are dishonest, probably all kinds of corruption, and the sinners are all there. These are the people who in lifestyle are about as far away from God as you can get. And at this dinner, God is closer to them than they even realize. They're sitting at the table with Jesus, God himself. And he likes them. And they like him. As Andy Stanley always says, those who were least like Jesus liked Jesus. And he liked them as well. So there's all this meal that's going on and Jesus and all these tax collectors and all these sinners and probably reluctantly a little bit, the disciples, but some of them liking the food. And how this next little bit plays out, I'm not sure, because they're in Matthew's house, and maybe it's an outdoor corridor, or maybe it's kind of like a, 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 some, I don't know, a patio. But the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they see this, and they're not happy. So it says this. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. They didn't ask Jesus. It's like, let's ask the disciples. And maybe, again, speculation, maybe it's because the disciples aren't real happy about it either, and maybe they're kind of sitting on the outskirts, and maybe they're closest to the wall, or maybe the Pharisees are trying to say, do you realize who you're following? Do you realize what's going on? But he, they ask the disciples, they don't ask Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's that line again. Why does he do this? We would never, ever think of doing that. We would not ever have this close proximity with these people. That would contaminate us. They're people of the land. Why would he do that? And apparently, they said it loud enough that everybody heard. And I don't think that was an accident. And I can just imagine Matthew saying, Jesus, don't worry about it. They do this kind of stuff all the time. I'll just take it out of his taxes. Don't worry about him. We're, you know, it's all good. But Jesus stops. He stops the meal and he looks at these religious leaders and he makes this piercing statement to them. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Matthew's probably going, yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, wait a second. Healthy Are you saying I'm sick? And Jesus probably just looked at Matthew and says, Matthew, come on. <laughs> You're a tax collector. Like, oh yeah, that's right. We all are. Yeah, of course we're sick. Of course. 
You see, the religious leaders were so afraid of being contaminated, so afraid of, of contact that they tried to avoid him because of the whole concept of contagion. You know, when an unhealthy person has contact with a healthy person, the healthy person becomes unhealthy. When an unclean person comes in contact with a clean person, the clean person becomes unclean. When an infected person comes in contact with an uninfected person, the uninfected person becomes infected, and they took this on a spiritual level as well. And Jesus, Jesus brings a reverse infection. Jesus does just the opposite. Because when someone who is unhealthy comes in contact with Jesus, he becomes healthy. When someone who's unclean comes in contact with Jesus, he becomes clean. When someone's infected with sin or whatever and comes in contact with Jesus, he becomes uninfected. Here's what's so cool. If you have your Bible and you're, you're reading, go back one page or go back one chapter because this happens on a physical level. At the very beginning of Matthew chapter 8, this happens right, be, right before this. Matthew chapter 8, uh, and it says this. A man with leprosy. Now you talk about uh, contagion. You talk about people that were like f afraid. Leprosy was considered a curse and it was considered to be like the most contagious and it was, it was gonna be like the most deadly, the most, uh, I don't know, fatal disease you could have. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now he kneels before him, but not too close. Because they had to stay a, a fair distance. This is like, like the New Testament version of social distancing. In fact, in the Talmud, which was the written uh, oral law when they wrote it down, in the Talmud it stated that a, a leper, someone who had leprosy, could not come, get this, within six feet of someone who was clean. There we go, social distancing. So, so he kneels down at least six feet. Oh, unless the wind was blowing, then it was 150 feet. All right, so, so he kneels down and he says, if you're willing, you can do this. Like, don't come close, Jesus. Just say it. Just pray it. Whatever, just think it. Just blink it. Just will it to happen. You can do this. You don't have to do anything. Just make it happen. Because to have any contact would mean you're now contaminated, unclean, unhealthy. But look what Jesus does. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Jesus brings about this reverse infection. Brings about, and, and on a spiritual level. This is what the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were so afraid of, but on a spiritual level. And for us, we know this. We come to Jesus broken, sinful, fallen, guilty, shame-filled. We come to Jesus and we're cleansed. I mean, what does scripture say? That, that, that God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That when we come to Jesus, we're no longer filled with guilt. We now have the righteousness. It's this reverse inf infection of the goodness and the grace of God when we come in contact with Jesus. All right, back to the story. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're upset about this whole thing. Uh, they, they are afraid 
of themselves being contaminated. And, and they've got this idea. I mean, when Jesus said, it's the sick who need the doctor, it's almost like the Pharisees were an evil doctor that would love to diagnose something and find this, this perverted joy if it was malignant, if it was fatal, and then not give any kind of a cure. In fact, the Pharisees had a statement. Some of you will hear a familiarity in this. They had a statement, there's great rejoicing when one sinner is obliterated before God. So Jesus gives them one more thing to think about and to do. Now remember, they know the law. They know the word of God inside and out. They study all the time. And Jesus kind of gives them some homework. He says this, but go and learn. Like they were lifetime learners. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now go on so you don't get contaminated. And go figure out what that means. Figure out what God was really saying. Figure out what the heart of God is about. And you wonder why I eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Because I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. And that had to have had a profound effect, not only on the religious leaders, but on the disciples as they're taking, the, they're new, remember, this is early on in the ministry. And Jesus is just kind of saying, this is what we're doing, this is what we're about. And all the tax collectors and all the people of the land and all the sinners that are at the table at this feast, they're hearing Jesus say these things. And that's the end of the account of that meal. And we don't know what happened to the many tax collectors. I mean, taxes still had to be collected. They were still tax collectors, many of them, I'm sure. All of them, probably. This is not the last time they would encounter Jesus because he spent most of his time in that region. They, they, and they may have been with the 5,000 that were fed. And they may have heard him teaching the Sermon on the Mount. They may have had other encounters with him. What we do know is about one, the one who this story is written about. It's that Matthew. And Matthew was not content to eat and run. Matthew followed. Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew did. He left his occupation as a tax collector, and he became one of the followers of Jesus. He became one of the 12 disciples and spent the next three years with Jesus. And then eventually went on to write his account of what happened with Jesus in the book we are now studying, Matthew. And what I love is that he never forgets what started with a meal. Because just, if you got your Bible, if you go over a, a page or two, one chapter over, in chapter 10, when Jesus finally establishes, these are my 12 disciples, Matthew records this, and I want you to see something. This is so cool. In Matthew chapter 10, he writes, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, of course, why not? Simon's first, who's also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, also referred to as the sons of thunder. I already mentioned that. Philip and Bartholomew, who may also be synonymous with Nathaniel, 
Thomas, kind of doubted he was going to get in here, but he got there. And Matthew, now he's writing himself in here. Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And of course, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What I love about this is most of the disciples, he kind of describes them by their relationships with their brother or their father or what have you. Some of them just kind of stand alone. But two of them, he reminds the readers, he reminds you and us, and he could have easily, he's writing this, he could have said Matthew and gone on. But he reminds, I am Matthew, the tax collector, the one that was at that meal, the one that Jesus said to follow. That, that was me. And Simon, the zealot, now, I, I am not making light of this. I'm just trying to explain. Simon the Zealot, you know what that means? He would be the guy with the Viking horns and the bare chest and the fur storming the capital to take over the world. That's what he was. He was a zealot. He's going to do anything. He's going to overthrow Rome. The two guys who get titles are the two that you would least expect Jesus to even associate with. One is this immoral thief, this, this corrupt, uh, you know, just tax collector, and the other is the zealot, and what's even more amazing is Matthew works for the government, Simon wants to overthrow the government, they're about as opposite as can be, and it's almost as if Matthew is saying, listen, do you not see, if Jesus, if Jesus would not only have meals, but call us, like me and Simon the zealot, like call us? To be disciples, if he would do that for us, he is so indiscriminate about who he would call to follow him. He would do that for you. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter any of your past, because I've got the past. And Simon's got the past. But we came in contact with Jesus. Something happened. And it all started with a meal. And Jesus said, follow me. And Jesus says, follow me, and you will change. You will change if you follow me. You know, say, well, I'm a sinner. Listen, being a sinner does not disqualify you from being a follower of Jesus. In fact, it's a prerequisite. All of the followers of Jesus were sinners. Say, well, I, you know, I've, I've got questions and I have doubts and I'm not sure about a bunch of stuff. You, you know what Thomas's nickname is, right? Follower of Jesus with great doubts. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm religious and stuff. Jesus says, hey, still follow me. I, I want you to follow me. Because when you follow me, you will change. You come in contact with me. And there will be a transformation that takes place in your life. C.S. Lewis, brilliant mind, intellectual, creative, became a follower of Jesus later in life. And he wrote this phenomenal little, uh, many of you know the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the whole Chronicles of Narnia, as well as others who wrote incredible writings. But one of them is, is this book called Mere Christianity. And there's a section of that book that's like entitled or subtitled Good Infection. And he writes this in that section. 
good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. You must have a proximity so that you can be positively infected with those things. And obviously, he's speaking of Jesus, and later at the bottom of that same page, he writes this, he, Jesus, came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ, to walk in proximity, to follow, and to be changed a little bit more like Jesus every single day so that we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory into his likeness, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3. So here's a question for you. How closely am I following Jesus? I don't care if you don't even call yourself a Christian, he invites you to follow him. I don't care if you have all kinds of questions and doubts and you, you wonder about some things and you don't believe something, he still calls you to follow him. I don't care if you're religious and you've been in church your whole life, he still calls you to follow. How closely am I following Jesus? Am I following him close enough to be infected with a good infection to become more like him, to think like he thinks, to act like he acts? to prioritize like he prioritizes, to sacrifice, to submit, to surrender, to follow the Lord's will, the word, and the way. And am I following close enough to relate to others who are far from God the way Jesus did? See, sometimes, especially in the church, we're guilty of saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and I do all this, and then we become like the Pharisees. Then we avoid, and then we, we condemn, and, and then we judge. And Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. I came to call sinners. It's the sick who need the doctor. And he calls us to be the light of the world, to be kingdom bringers, to invite people to the goodness and grace of God. You know, along that line, because some of you might be saying, I, I, I want to do that better. I, I want to know how I can do that practically. I want to suggest um, and encourage you to do something. In a few weeks, Pastor Randy uh, has an online gathering that he's going to do for three weeks, uh, and it's called Engage in Relationships. This, it starts March 7th. It's for three Sunday mornings at 11 a.m., and it'll be on Zoom, so it doesn't matter where you live or where you're from. You can be a part of this. But it just helps us to know how can we be more like Jesus in how we interact with those who are far from God? How can we be winsome, compelling, attractive like Jesus was when those who are far from God liked being around him, liked hearing what he had to say? And some of them were even changed. 
So I want to encourage you, if you'd like more information about this, you can go online or the Cornwall app. You can sign up and be a part of that. Great, very practical way to live this out as we continue to follow Jesus because he's invited us to his meal and he's called us to follow him and following him is doing the things he would do in our world.